to the Unorthodox Evil Podcast. I'm really glad you're joining me. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and this is part seven in my series on the Book of Job. We're in a sort of mini-series within a series here, looking at the, the question or the idea of the self. In the previous episode, I looked at the issue of the ego as this really vital aspect of the self. And in the process, I also presented a window through which we might better understand the self. I'm going to summarize the the main points that I covered there shortly. Well, in the next episode, I'll be diving into the issue of identity. That is the question of what we identify with and how this identification can help or hinder us in life. And this is uh, fundamentally connected to to the question of the transformation that Job undergoes um, in, as, as described in the book of Job. So in this episode, I want to delve into the subject of ego death, which sounds terribly pessimistic, and I I really hope that's not what it is, although it is um, a difficult subject. So first, in summary of what I covered in the last podcast, allow me to make a few observations. First, the self is mostly opaque to us. We hardly ever have any clear idea of, of the full nature of the universe that exists within ourselves. Second, the self is always caught in a tension between its own identity and the pushing and pulling of the world. In other words, the self is always bound up in its others, but it's never simply the sum of its others. Third, and linked with this second idea, the self is both at the mercy of things and capable of exerting force on things. This idea mirrors the archetypal idea of the divine child, both infinitely God and powerful and omniscient and so on, and terribly and profoundly vulnerable. We have dominion over the world, but it's also strangely a kind of dominion over a world that is really impossible for us to control. Fourth, the self is bound up in a story. The self is always a kind of narrativized self, a self that exists in and through a temporal frame that we articulate through story. I think this is a a really potent idea. I mean, we we understand ourselves through stories. So fifth and lastly, the self is multi-layered. What this means essentially is that we are terribly complex. These ideas about the self can be pretty well summarized in a, a story that I really love. It comes from the life of Joseph. But it's not, the, this is the Joseph of, of the book of Genesis, but it's not the version that you get there, although it overlaps, obviously. Um, this this actual story comes from Jewish mythology. So there's a bit about the story that mirrors what's in the Bible, obviously, and then there's a bit of added extra stuff, which I think is really profound. In the story, we have the dreamer, this very egotistical boy who who sees himself as always being over and above his brothers. And his brothers get hold of him and they strip him naked and they throw him into a pit. Well, he's naked except for a dull stone that he wears around his neck as a pendant on a kind of string necklace. This dull stone just happens to be the Tsoha stone. Um, It's the stone that contains the primordial light that God called out of darkness at the dawn of creation, you know, when God says, let there be light. And while this adolescent Joseph is in the pit, that stone, which is originally dull and no one knows it's it has any significance or value, it starts to glow. And what it does in the process is it keeps the snakes and the scorpions at bay. 
And as the myth goes, Joseph feels safe because of this light, although he is obviously very vulnerable and very, very uh, much alone. Later, Joseph gets pulled out of the pit and he's thrown into this crazy story that results in his redemption. So that's the story that you encounter in the book of, of Genesis. As the Genesis account of the story goes, Joseph finds his way into a position of power, significant power. He's, he's Pharaoh's, um, the Pharaoh of Egypt's right-hand man. And in a moment of reconciliation with his formerly cruel brothers, who are much humbled by their own sort of experiences, Joseph tells them that what they had meant for evil, God had meant for good. I don't think this is necessarily a statement of God's intention being bound up in the intention of his brothers. That would be a mistaken way of reading it for me at least. But um, it's, a, it's nevertheless a really profound uh, statement, which I'll, I'll get to the meaning shortly. This story for me is the best summary of the nature of the self that I can think of, um, which is probably not what you, you were expecting. This is the story that kind of summarizes what we are and, and are becoming in the world. Especially when we compare the story to some potent concept, concepts from psychoanalysis. We have the ego. This is Joseph. And he is parading his vanity before his brothers in the form of a strikingly impressive coat made by his father. The coat, of course, is a symbol of what culture hands down to us, what gifts and curses we receive from being formed within a kind of safety net, a kind of particular net of meanings. Then, Joseph's brothers represent the world and its processes, and, and the often oppressive feeling that it is, the fact that things happen to us, terrible things, and they are beyond our control. And then we have the superego here too in the story, the cultural consciousness of Joseph's father that is actually what sends him to his brothers, that we are often driven by the superego um, into into the unknown sometimes and it's this force that is there pushing us to act and do what it says and we must go along with it even though it may be leading us into a kind of pit of our own doom well seeming doom joseph's being stripped is equal to the process that we go undergo when we go through our various hells and when we have our safety net of meaning taken from us we are stripped naked uh, left totally exposed to the scorpions and snakes in our own unconscious. We find ourselves very fragile in a, in a world that is far bigger than we are. Joseph shows up in the story at first as the foolhardy, cocky self, and then he is thrown into the, the story. And it's a story that he and, well, that is his ego self, does not want. The pit is also a symbol of the unconscious, as I've kind of hinted here. Um, it's the darkest parts of ourselves. So it's not just the experiences we have, but it's something in inside us. And usually these are the dark parts of ourselves we, we want to disavow and be rid of. Or perhaps you could say that the, the pit includes a sense of the id, which, which is a kind of irrational source in our un, unconscious of our, our drive towards creativity, but also our drive towards destruction and sometimes even, when we're not careful, self-destruction. But then, there is the Tohar stone, and this is the primordial light that Joseph carries with him. This represents the soul, which is the true self. Joseph gets a glimpse of this for the very first time, only when he is in the pit, which is 
quite an interesting idea. He sees the truth about himself that transcends the situation that he's in. And it's this transcendent aspect of the self, the soul, the promise of a, a more expansive and enlightened self that is suggested to be the thing that carries him towards that stunning, startling conclusion. What the world intends for evil, God intends for good. Again, I don't think it's helpful to, to read that literally, but it, it's a very insightful thing to meditate on. What cannot possibly okay, it basically suggests, is okay. Everything belongs, even everything that doesn't belong. As soon as we get into spirituality in its sort of deeper form, we get into paradoxes like this. Um, to my younger self, this conclusion, this idea that, you know, what the world in, intends for evil, God intends for good, this this seems, well, would have seemed to, to my younger self as not only absurd, but kind of cruel. To me, now, where I am, there's there's still some part of me that wants to resist it, but I'm learning to see it not as an empirical truth. It's not something I can verify or argue in logical, scientific terms, because I see it as a transrational truth. It's not irrational, it's something that transcends rationality. Where evil occurs, I would say it is still evil. It's not that I would in any sense want to theologically or philosophically justify evil. That, that's not what I'm doing here. Evil should not happen. But that it happens may not undo us. I think that is at, at least part of what this story is getting at. Maybe all the damaging intentions that drive people to hurt others can be pulled into a higher intention to do us immense good. Maybe all the random terrors we encounter will not destroy us. Maybe all the cruelty in the world, in nature, in human systems, in impersonal and personal events, maybe what is bad can work for the good or be worked for the good. But that good is going to be painful to, to us precisely because it involves not only the stripping of the ego, but its death, or rather its deaths. Psychologically speaking, it is detrimental to people to have their egos completely destroyed. And so whatever I'm saying, I'm not talking about the complete destruction of the ego. Uh, I'm talking about these mini deaths and, and yes, ego death, but that death involves a kind of resurrection, which I'll get to, obviously. I don't think ego death is a once-off thing. Um, so I'm obviously I'm using the idea of death here symbolically and as I am doing with pretty much the whole book of Job. Um, everything is a symbol or an analogy or, or a pattern. The ego is made aware of this, the primordial light through two things. Um, these two things are great love and great suffering. Love and suffering both have the ability to break the ego apart and to cause the ludicrous babble tower builder that is the, the false self or ego to begin to crumble and in the process to also expand. So that's that's what happens to the ego as it dies in a sense. It, it gets rebuilt and reborn, but it's always a bigger, more expansive self. Uh, sadly, suffering is usually more effective a teacher than love. We tend to listen to suffering uh, more easily. Suffering will tear the ego down, which is not to say that suffering is a-okay and no problem, but that suffering can be more useful for growth 
if we let it be what it is. Um, and this is something that Nietzsche had a, an insight into, and I think he was right, um, to participate in creating a deeper and more profound self. We need to learn to accept the ego deaths that we need to go through. I'm not seeing, by the way, this necessity, the need to go through ego death as some kind of uh, Leibnizian best best of all possible worlds thing. I, I think we live in the best of all impossible worlds. These things are contingent. They they don't have to happen in any sort of divinely ordained sense, but um, they happen and they can transform us. So I am, in in a way, creating a very sharp distinction between the wills of people and, in a way, the function of nature and the will of the divine. We can also see how all of this, this process of ego death and transformation plays out in the book of Job and in the person of Job. In fact, the structure of Job mirrors the story of Joseph that I've just told. Job wears his religion and family and rituals like a many-colored coat, and then it is stripped from him, and he is thrown into the pit of hell, so to speak. He is left naked and vulnerable and, and suffering, and his friends, though they are well-intentioned, are often like snakes and scorpions, and Job experiences their appearance into his life as intrusive and disturbing, for the most part, although I've already suggested that maybe they are helping in some obscure way. And then there is the primordial light, God himself, who shows up towards the end of the book, and the light banishes the darkness and tells Job's friends that they should pick on someone their own size, effectively. And Job, in the process, finds a self that transcends the ego. So he recognizes the ego not as, as completely unnecessary, but as a portion, a part of the self, as I mentioned in the previous episode. But let's take these ideas and then look in more detail at what Job is saying, and, well, the character of Job. In Job, the self is remarkably vulnerable. Nature metaphors abound, and the message is really very clear. Nature is immense and untamable. The universe is overloaded with chaotic possibility. In Job, the world is something that invades our sense of being. Nature is something that we are paradoxically both at the mercy of, even as we are part of it. And in Job, um, we don't find a guy who has dominion over his environment, like Adam did in Genesis. That said, though, his ego is in many places trying to do its best to keep itself intact under the strain of the events that have happened to him. We know that Job is not in control because of what he says. He is, and obviously because of what happens to him, he is a really clever guy and incredibly perceptive and wise and lucid. However, when you pay close attention to what he's saying, you'll notice something quite surprising. He is perpetually contradicting himself, especially when it comes to talk about his own life and his perceptions or understanding of God. Job wants to keep fighting, but he wants to die. He affirms that his life has some kind of value, but he hates his life and he, he wants to die. So he, he, he wants to live, but things are going so badly that he wants to just have it be over with, life itself be over with. And Job thinks that God is in the right, in a way, and then there's, um, he says that, you know, there's no way of proving that God is wrong, but then he still wants to prove God wrong. Job maintains a strong sense of his own identity 
even in the face of what would seemingly destroy it. And even in admitting that he is right, he also admits that he really doesn't feel great about being right. Maybe he's not right. Something about him being right and his sense of selfhood is at odds. As we walk through Job's words, we start to notice something else. His Babel-building ego is crumbling. He's undergoing ego death. This is not one of the, the many smaller ego deaths we all go through, but something kind of catastrophic, something that will totally transform his very self. He will access the, the Tsohar, the primordial light, in a way that he never has been able to before. It's helpful to notice some of the specifics we find in Job's speeches in the book of Job. In chapter 12, Job tells his friends that they have some decent wisdom, but that this wisdom is going to die with them. In other words, it's really not that great wisdom after all. It's, it's as temporal as they are, as time-bound as their egos are. In any case, Job suggests, God's wisdom makes fools of us all. God's wisdom is too big to be contained within the narrow frame of time and the human self. The self, for Job, is clueless without sufficient knowledge and perceptual genius. Compared with God, we are all drunken morons, <laughs> staggering through the world without a clue. <laughs> the drunken morons idea, by the way, is from the book of Job. I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but I'm using the text as my guide. In chapter 13, though, Job contradicts this with an assertion that he is going to be proven right in the end. In some sense, he's kind of, the subtext here is, God is wrong. Um, but even in saying this, he feels that his own rightness is crumbling. As he points out in chapter 14, he's going to die too, and his hope for a decent resurrection is pretty shaky. Entropy is the order of things, he says in chapter 14. And then in chapter 16, Job points out that his friends are shoddy comforters. He begins to suggest that maybe God really is the villain in the story after all. But then in chapter 17, after pretty much slandering God again for a short while, Job admits that his hope is in his Redeemer, that his Redeemer will save him. He says, in my flesh, I will see God, which is a, an amazing statement on its own. And remember what I said about how when we think God is naked, we are probably, it's more probably that, that we are left exposed. Well, I realize I'm mentioning all of this in fairly rapid fire mode, but I hope you're noticing the mere fact that Job's view of God and of life and himself is incoherent. And I think this is a good thing from a narrative as well as an existential perspective, because what it shows is that Job is trying to discover God. He, he's trying to discover what is real, ultimately, rather than just trying to define God. And I think if we don't um, see that, we'll start to view Job as, as less profound than it really is. Skipping ahead a little, in Job 28, we find Job talking about wisdom itself. And he says the most astonishing thing. He talks about how God is the one who puts an end to darkness, who finds perfection within the shadow of death. He talks about how God draws water out of rocks, which is the last place you'd want to look if you're looking for water. It also happens to allude to an idea found in the Exodus story. In starting to get a better, more personally resonant sense of the divine, Job admits that whatever this divinity equates to, whatever it is like, because we don't know what it is, we only know what it is like, it involves a kind of 
impossible gesture. Water comes from rocks. Lame people walk, blind people see. Stupid people start to become capable of genuine reasoning. Job says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which for me echoes these same ideas, these same impossibilities, because fear is not something we naturally think of uh, as something that's going to give us anything good. But, well, it is what has kept human beings alive since the dawn of human evolution. Um, fear of God, of, of the ultimate reality, is what actually puts us in touch with that ultimate reality. People shouldn't be here, but they are. It seems that God, this mysterious consciousness, likes it when impossible things happen. And maybe we should like it too. In all this, something really amazing is starting to emerge. Job's consciousness seems to be shifting. I would say even, it, not just that it seems to be shifting, but that it really is shifting. The more he contends with the divine, the more he starts to discover who he is. There's even a kind of serenity that's starting to, to seep into his language towards the end of his speeches. In chapters uh, 29, 30, and 31, Job starts to brag a bit about his own greatness. That is what he was like before everything went so very badly. And in doing so, Job starts to admit that what has happened to him has happened to someone named Job, someone he used to be, someone he no longer is. And when we read this last bit, we may as well see it as the ego on its last legs. Well, maybe this is because the ego is finally starting to give way so that something else can emerge. That last bit, God arriving on the scene, is something that happens out of a whirlwind, which means we're looking at something that happens that doesn't quite fit with what's been going on before. Before it was Job's friends as conversation partners. Here, God appears out of a whirlwind, out of something kind of miraculous that's just there. It's as if water has just come out of a rock. It's a total surprise. In fact, it'd be better to say that it's a horrible shock to the system. And it is, in fact, discontinuous with everything that has happened before. To explain what I mean, let me surprise you with something else. Let's take a quick look at a completely different spot in the Christian scriptures, the story of Paul's journey to Damascus, which is told in the book of Acts. Paul had been, as the story goes, a pretty rabid persecutor of the church. He had done everything in his power to destroy that which he perceived to be a threat to his faith, um, and especially what he had perceived to be a threat to his belief in God. He'd had this conception of himself, this egotistical conception of himself as this Jew among Jews and this Roman among Romans, this man among, among men. He had many reasons, as he himself bragged, to be proud of himself, or that is, proud of his ego structure. Well, then he was on the road to Damascus, and he had this vision of Jesus who asked him why he was persecuting him. In Paul's head, Jesus had been nothing but a mythological hero, this kind of fictional idea built on some historical reality. Someone who was crucified and then presumed resurrected by a naive bunch of superstitious idiots. So Paul, that's what Paul really believed. Um, Paul was a total fundamentalist. He was zealously and rapidly supportive 
of ensuring that the Jesus movement and its proponents met as quick and as painful a death as possible. But then, out of a whirlwind, in a way, out of the blue, there's this vision of Jesus that he had, um, something totally discontinuous with his history and his convictions. The result of this vision happens to be Paul's complete conversion. One day he's this Jesus hater, and the next um, he's Jesus' number one apostle. One moment he's a heretic hunter, the next moment he's a heretic himself. One way to read this story is to understand that Paul was fully confronted with the truth that he had been repressing. He'd entered the pit of Joseph and found the primordial light. His unconscious made itself fully manifest to himself, which is to say that Paul had already been a Christian for some time, but he hadn't known it. Suddenly what he had known all the time, the primordial light was always with him, always guiding him, but he just had found a way to use his ego structure to repress it. And we do this all the time. It's our kind of natural mode of being, and we live in a world that encourages us to do this. So Paul had his ego in charge, but his unconscious self had other ideas. And through this interaction between the conscious and unconscious aspects of himself, he found the deeper truth of who he really was. And so suddenly we find in Paul water pouring out of a rock. Pure life is found, not apart from the shadow of death, so to speak, but within it. Well, Job walks through the world with a fairly strong sense of his ego structure. At, the, at least this is in the beginning of the story. He knows who he is. He's a good guy. He makes sacrifices for his family, and God is the recipient of this goodness that he wants to manifest. And God is predictable and well to him at this time, and all the boundaries are pretty clear. As we read Job's words and the words of his friends, I see this kind of disintegration of ego that's taking place. Everything becomes messy. It's as if the self is returning to a state of primordial darkness and chaos. Job does his best, of course, to cling to his ego. We see him many times trying to do this, but he can't really cling for very long. It's just too painful. And then Job has a vision of God, and all other voices are silenced, as if all other voices don't, in fact, matter. Perhaps what has happened is something like what various mystics have experienced and described. The natural thing, when we're faced with something terrible, traumatic, and out of place, is to completely resist it. This isn't happening to me, we tell ourselves. This can't be happening. But then we, we get weak in the process. Um, our ego structure gets weak, and we sink into the feeling, into this disturbing depth of, of, of the experience. Um, maybe in the process of weakening, we, we begin to love ourselves enough, enough to, to take our experience of whatever is going on seriously. We find the sensation of the feeling in the body. Just as Job experienced his pain on his body, and after judging it, which is the, the first gesture, and deciding we don't want it, we then start to find that we can't really resist it any longer. So we just feel it. We observe the energy of it without naming it, without doing anything about it. We become aware of it. It's emotion. This is what it is. It's emotion. And all emotion 
is energy, and energy is neither created nor destroyed, but it still has to go somewhere. And then we might tell this energy, this pain that we're feeling, that it's okay, it's pain, it's discomfort, and we name it, and we we maybe start, as the mystics suggest we should, we tell the pain that it is welcome. This may sound crazy, because it it is crazy in a way. It's crazy difficult. I'm not the master of this in any any way, but it's something I'm working on. Um, when we're faced with terribly difficult, painful things, the general thing that we might want to do is just to chase it away. But but I think that welcoming it is, though harder to do, it is the step, the the, the necessary step on the way to healing. What starts to happen in the the process is you notice that the so-called negative energy is not you. It's not something that you are. It's there. It's inside your temporal being. It's happening to you, but it is not who you are. You are consciousness itself, pure and simple. You, the true you, is this primordial light that cannot be touched by dragons and scorpions and serpents and leviathans. So you get to be consciousness itself without being a victim of the situation. You get to watch it come and go as a kind of self beyond your ego. This is what some people call the no self. You might find yourself capable of thanking your body for bringing the situation to your attention um, because that's an amazing thing that, that your body tells you um, what's going on and you might start to recognize that the emotion is just energy it needs to go somewhere that's also so then you become capable this is a process it can take a while but you can start to let it go it doesn't leave you easily of course and you you may need to bid farewell to that energy quite a few times until it is finally free so then tell it that it's free because it is not you. It is not your true self. Your ego may hate it and it may feel like it is undoing you and destroying you, but you are not your ego. When Jesus dies in agony on the cross, he announces his deepest anguish. Even as a symbol, I think this is a really helpful idea. He cries out as if the ego is busy dying. It's painful simply because. It's really, really painful to let go. But the consequence of this ego death, and as I've said, life is a series of ego deaths, and I would say ego resurrections in some sense. It's a non-egotistical ego that gets re resurrected. And the consequence of this ego death is a genuine openness to true reality, to divinity, to the true self. It is the true self, in a way, that is emerging. The arrival of God onto the scene in the book of Job, certainly can be read as the glorious aspect of this process. The, it's the moment of enlightenment. Finally, Job's ego can no longer control the situation, so the true self, the soul perhaps, is forced to take over. I need, of course, to say much more about this, um, so that's what I'm going to do in the next episode, which will be the last episode on the question of the self in the book of Job, although not the last episode in the series on the book of Job. The question I want to ask there is, what is the most fundamental change that takes place in the book of Job, or 
put differently, what is the fundamental change that takes place in Job, in the book of Job? Well, I've already hinted at the idea that Job's perspective changes. His perceptual framework is different. So then we can ask, what does he see? What can we see? I mean, if, if we're in this process of growing and being transformed and undergoing uh, many ego deaths and resurrections, what are we supposed to be looking out for? Uh, I, again, I'm, I'm not a guru. I have, I have not completely figured this stuff out. But what I have experienced is, is the truth of this process and how it's helping me to, uh, to make sense of existence. So I will continue on this subject um, next time in the next podcast. So I hope you join me for that um, to find out what I'm going to say. I hope I join myself for that too. That would be nice. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Um, if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon. I will post a link to my Patreon page on uh, in the show notes of this show. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.